Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. So good afternoon. I'm going to get us started right on time. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. We're glad to have everybody here for such an esteemed day. My name is Derek Dortch. Um, in my capacity here, I'm Director of Career Services. I also uh, uh, work on the, uh, with the board uh, on the Marine Corps University Foundation. So we're really, really excited to have the Marine Corps University Foundation here in a joint IWP uh, Marine Corps University Foundation uh, a sponsor program where we're going to have Professor Young right here, Dr. Young, who's going to be teaching. Well, now she's not teaching. <laughs> but he's going to actually, well, I'm going to say teaching because he's going to teach you some stuff about what's going on in China and everything else. So it's going to be an exciting day and everything else. Um, really, really quick, the Marine Corps University Foundation is really the only foundation that's out there that really supports the Marine Corps University in the way it does, that really kind of provides funding for chairs, funding for things like Dr. Young and everything else to provide that really quality education to Marines who are out there who are coming to Marine Corps University and then going right back out to the field. So we're so excited to have them here. I'm going to let uh, General Mills come up, and he's going to talk a little bit more, and he's going to introduce everybody else. We have some esteemed, esteemed generals here, and then we'll get right into the program. So let's give everybody a round of applause real quick as they come on up. Good afternoon. I, I am, in fact, General uh, General Rich Mills. I am the President and CEO of the Marine Corps University Foundation. And on behalf of the Foundation and our Chairman, uh, General James Conway, it's my privilege to welcome everybody and to thank Derek, for the uh, for setting this up and making this making this thing happen, because we've been talking about it for a number of years, and now we're going to make it happen, which is to bring one of our distinguished uh, faculty members here to talk to you on an item of interest to all of you, which is the Pacific Basin. Marine Corps University's foundation's motto is educating 21st century leaders. It's uh, our mission is to enhance and enrich the professional military education and the leadership development of active duty Marines. Those Marines enroll both at the university campus at Quantico and at remote sites throughout the Corps. In addition to uh, such things as tonight's lecture, the Foundation sponsors 10 endowed chairs at the university, one of whom you will hear tonight. Uh, we sponsor seminars, we sponsor awards, staff rides, and we provide overall operational support to the university and the university president. One of our key things is our, is our Foundation lectures. We do those both on campus and at distinguished venues such as this, and in partnership with the great organizations such as the Institute of World Politics. Over the years, these lectures have brought many distinguished uh, speakers to the uh, podium. They've addressed uh, critical and current issues of vital concern to the country, both in defense and national security. And they've always generated spirited discussion and questions afterwards, and I expect uh, nonetheless today. We do have two of the university's uh, trustees with us. Derek has just introduced himself, of course, as one of our trustees. has been with us for many years. And so it's going to be my pleasure in a second to introduce our second trustee who's here tonight. He's a Marine who has spent a great deal of his career dealing with security issues in the Pacific. I had seven and a half pages to talk about General Gregson, but I'll, let me boil it down. He's, an 18, he's, 19, 1868. he's a 1968 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. Fifty years ago today. Fifty years ago today. Look at that. Going to he was the first graduate they had who was less than ten years old. <laughs> At the time, uh, when he retired from the uh, Marine Corps in 2005, he was the commander of the United States Marine Forces Pacific. He was the commanding general of Fleet Marine Forces Pacific and the commander of U.S. Marine Corps Bases Pacific, all of which were headquartered at Camp H.M. Smith in Hawaii. 
Well, on active duty, he served with the 1st Reconnaissance Battalion in the, uh, in the Republic of Vietnam. He's commanded at, the, uh, at every level, an infantry company, 1st Battalion, the 5th Marines, the 7th Marine Regiment, the 3rd Marine Division. From 2001 to 2005, he served as commanding general, 3rd Marine Expeditionary Force, and commander, Marine Corps Bases Japan, and commander, Marine Forces Japan. He's been awarded the Japanese Order of the Rising Sun, the Gold and Silver Star, the Korean Order of National Security, the Gerson Medal, and the Republic of China Order of the Resplendent Banner. Resplendent Banner. How's that? The Gold Sash. you got to love that. you got to love that. As you can see, tremendous experience in that part of the world. He's also served as a military observer with the United Nations, a deputy for Marine Corps Matter at the Secretary of Navy's office for program appraisal. He's a very uh, distinguished officer, uh, highly decorated, and it's a pleasure and honor for me to introduce to you uh, our trustee and our, our next speaker tonight, Lieutenant Colonel Chip Rixon. Thank you very much, Rich. Uh, uh, it's too bad my mother wasn't here to hear all that. <laughs> uh, this is a very timely thing that we're doing tonight, and we have the right person here to do it. China is one of those things that's much more discussed than understood. And Chris Young's bio is in the program. I won't do what Rich did and read it, uh, but, but he's the guy to talk about this. Uh, the United States has been involved in China literally since we became a nation. The first episode was the cruise of a ship that was called the Empress of China in 1784. It left New England to go to China. Its purpose was business, commerce. It wasn't government. We didn't have much of a government at that time. We were still trying to consolidate the revolution. Uh, since that time, China's endured things like the Opium Wars that started in the mid-19th century. This started what the current Chinese leadership refers to as the century of humiliation at the hand of the West, which they mean us, among others. Boxer Rebellion uh, was famous, made a movie, the international intervention to protect the legation area when the uh, Qing Dynasty was in its death throes. Nationalist China was our gallant ally in World War II, and there was no end of uh, rhetoric in the United States uh, and things to extol the virtues of nationalist China as our ally. There was also, of course, the communist rebellion going on in China at the time. Uh, after VJ Day, General Marshall, our, the chief of staff here of the Army, a distinguished American, was trying to retire. President Truman delayed his retirement to send him to China on a mission to broker a settlement between the Nationalist Chinese, Chiang Kai-shek, and the Communist Chinese, Mao Zedong. Needless to say, that didn't go as was anticipated. It did teach Marshall something about the difficulties of negotiating with the Chinese, which led him to shape the Marshall Plan for Europe the way he did, which is part of uh, Chris's effort here tonight. Following the death of Mao and the rise of Deng Xiaoping, uh, and his motto, among others, to get rich is glorious, uh, China started opening up and opening up the economy. As time went on in the 80s and the 90s, the United States made a definite policy decision that it would be better for us to facilitate China's rise and reintegration into the international system based than, rather than push back on it, based on the assumption that capitalist business and commerce success would lead to democratization. That hasn't worked out too well either. 
So, uh, following that and following things going on now, then we have an expert here to talk to us about China's Belt and Road Initiative and to explain things that are not nearly as well understood as they need to be. So, with that, Chris, Selling general bills and Gerald Gregson that um, we, we, Teresa and I just pulled up literally 10 minutes before this lecture started. So I should have known uh, DC traffic and then the general said, well, I mean, you were at National Defense University, you should have known. That's not only that, I just lived up the, up the street during graduate school. Um, and so I really should have known uh, what traffic was like in the DuPont Circle there. So thank you very much to the Institute for World Politics and Marine Corps University Foundation for this invitation. Uh, the fact that the room is practically filled tells me the interest in China continues. Why? Because China probably remains uh, currently our most challenging foreign policy question. And the most recent, um, the most recent buzzword or bumper sticker that China analysts and people who are just interested in, uh, in the region is the Belt and Road Initiative. And so today's talk is really going to get at what is the Belt and Road Initiative, why is it so challenging, um, and why the United States needs to be taken very seriously, and on the other hand, we have the opposite problem, which is uh, people hype the Belt and Road Initiative as the end of the world. And so we have two bookends of a problem. You've got folks who say nothing to worry about, and you've got folks who really um, uh, uh, exaggerate the problems with it. And I think the answer is usually somewhere in between. So, um, what is the Belt and Road Initiative? So, it's, a, it's a, one of China's most extensive and ambitious foreign, pol foreign economic policy uh, program. Initiated in 2013, Xi Jinping announced it. Um, uh, and uh, it's a combination of two general concepts. The Silk Road Economic Belt and Maritime Silk Road, uh, and, the, and the Maritime Silk Road. These two concepts essentially comprise the Belt and Road Initiative. Originally, the term was One Belt, One Road, or in Chinese, Yi Dai, Yi Lu. Um, so when you hear the Chinese mention this, you'll either hear Belt and Road Initiative, or you'll hear One Belt, One Road. The land component of the Belt and Road Initiative connects China's undeveloped or underdeveloped inner provinces to Europe through Central Asia. So that's the basic concept, that China's inner provinces, not along its coastline, but its inner provinces connected through Central Asia and into Eurasia, connecting all the way to Western Europe. That is a pretty ambitious, uh, ambitious program, uh, just on the face of it. But the fact of the matter is, there's a second uh, element of it, the maritime portion of the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, the second leg connects the fast-growing Southeast Asian uh, region to China's southern and east coast provinces through ports and railway investments. The scale of the Belt and Road Initiative is enormous. No matter how you measure it, no matter how you look at it, no matter what estimates um, you accept, it's an enormous scale. Um, so right now, over 60 countries have expressed an interest in being part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, the, the interested countries include 55% of the world GNP. I mean, if you just think about that, it's the enormity of the economic activity involved. Um, and 70% of the world's population. Um, 
the energy projects associated with it could encompass 75% of, of the known energy reserves. At least those are some of the estimates that the energy companies talk about. Um, so far, the project uh, has funded through the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which I'll talk about in a minute, $100 billion of projects uh, and $40 billion to the Silk Road Fund. But there are other estimates, probably uh, on the conservative side, that could extend out to about $1 trillion of Chinese investment over the next few decades. And this could extend about $4 trillion. But trillion, trillion dollars as a conservative estimate, $4 trillion as, as wild, uh, some of the speculation. So if you just think about the enormity of the, of the, of the funding involved, that's the first thing you need to take into account. Um, so how do you evaluate the Belt and Road Initiative? So like I mentioned before, there are two ways, there, there tend to be two camps that look at the Belt and Road. And I, I hate to sort of put uh, dedicated analysts who try to unravel uh, this very ambiguous and loose concept into, um, into boxes. But by and large, we've got two general groups that have looked at it, um, optimists and pessimists. So the optimists, uh, they point out, first of all, that too much is, is made of the geostrategic uh, elements of the, of the plan. Um, they point out that the Belt and Road Initiative essentially um, originated as an economic strategy and remains rooted in economic objectives. So what are they talking about? So when the optimists say, hey, we make too much of the geostrategic elements of this, you really need to remember that economics really drives the Belt and Road Initiative. And they point out to a couple things. Uh, first of all, the Belt and Road Initiative essentially began as a, as a, uh, as a plan to develop their inner provinces. Their, it, one thing that's certain is that the coastal part of China rapidly developed. And if you've, if you've been to China recently, going to Shanghai or Beijing, to me, is, is no different than going to Chicago or New York City. I mean, when I go to Beijing, I'm, I feel like I'm in my own hometown of uh, New York City. If you go further inland in the inner provinces of China, it's a completely different story. So part of the, the plan was to figure out how you even out the economic growth, allow the inner provinces to grow. Um, so just a couple of facts and figures. Shanghai is five times wealthier than the inner province of Gansu. Uh, the western provinces share of GDP increased only marginally uh, from 17.1% in 2000 to about 18% in 2010. I mean, that's, that's minuscule economic growth. Um, Xinjiang, Tibet, Qinghai, and Gansu are four lowest ranking provinces in China's, uh, in, in China's economy. Um, so that's the first thing. The, the, the strategy initiated was initiated to help develop those inner provinces. Second, China right now is suffering from some excess capacity problems. So you may recall 2008, financial market crisis, the United States Congress attempting to, to create a stimulus package, the Chinese being an authoritarian state had no problems throwing everything but the kitchen sink at their, uh, their financial crisis problem. However, one of the problems with having such a gigantic um, stimulus package is they had overcapacity. They overproduced everything, cement, steel. So they've got on their hands a massive overproduction uh, over capacity of a lot of, of products, particularly in the construction area. Uh, one of the arguments is that the, the Belt and Road Initiative serves as a means to export either a lot of those products or wholesale industries into these areas that need development. So that's a second uh, argument, that is Belt and Road Initiative is not just to help 
the inner provinces develop. It's also to deal with what's going to be a looming economic problem for China. Uh, just as a, 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 a statistic, as a result of that stimulus package, Chinese steel production surged from about 500 million to 803 million tons. And so the Chinese have a lot of steel and cement that they're trying to get rid of. Uh, additionally, they've got a lot of excess labor. As China's economic growth is slowing down, they've got a lot of excess labor capacity that they've got to do something with it. The Belt and Road Initiative is certainly, if anything, uh, a jobs program. That is, you could send gigantic numbers of Chinese laborers into these underdeveloped areas, and that will take care of some, maybe it won't take care of all of it, but some of your, your excess labor problems. Um, finally, just, just to mention a couple of other economic benefits, uh, it create, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative with such a large amount of infrastructure investment um, is surely going to create new markets for Chinese exports. That is, if the problem is the rest of the global economy is slowing down, and China's strategy had been for three decades or so exporting their way to wealth, and that's slowing down, then certainly the creation of new markets in the underdeveloped part of the world is part of that strategy. Um, and then finally, uh, the fact that the Chinese are exporting new types of technologies into these areas, high-speed rail, the Chinese are in a position to set these standards, and they're more likely to be accepted by countries that uh, that uh, will have less competition and more willing to accept Chinese finance and investment. And so China has the opportunity to set new standards in, in some of China's emerging innovative technologies. So those are some of the arguments that the optimists make. They say, listen, too much is made of the downside of the Belt and Road Initiative. You really shouldn't worry too much about the strategic implications of this because it really the purpose of this was largely a uh, an economics-driven program. And there's some other evidence to support that general perspective. And that is, even before Xi Jinping assumed power, um, even under Hu Jintao's um, uh, administration, there were some of the scholars, some of the um, Chinese scholars were looking at go west strategies. If, if we're going to run into uh, the Western Pacific powers, the United States getting all upset with China trying to break out uh, and trying to interact in the maritime domain, well, maybe China's strategy should be to go west. And so even that precedes Xi Jinping's arrival in power. And so there is some evidence that the go west strategy did exist prior to Xi Jinping's arrival. However, uh, I, I would say that the, 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 um, while the argument that economics is largely the origin of the Belt and Road Initiative, I do think that there's something to be said about the strategic elements of this, and that if you know anything about the Chinese, the need to merge strategy with economic development, with military and security, with political is always there. That is, the Chinese don't simply create these boxes for themselves. They sit there and try and merge these strategies. And, uh, and so before I, before I go into that, let's talk a little bit about what the other side of the argument says, the pessimists. The pessimists argue that geostrategic implications are inescapable can't escape from the geostrategic elements of what the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, first off, $1 trillion in infrastructure investment, opaque rules for the bidding process, um, promises to, tr to transform the global economic landscape, possibly with the U.S. companies and the U.S. left by the wayside in the end. That's one fear. Um, second fear, <coughs> such uh, a wide-scale and enormous program 
um, could lead to the creation of alternate international investment uh, organizations with less stringent lending rules and less emphasis on good governance. Um, and, and if that happens, over time, this could be a direct assault on a rules-based international order. Right, we'll talk about that in a second. That, that is, is certainly repeated as a concern. That is, when you have uh, this level of infrastructure investment at this scale, um, with the creation of alternate international lending institutions, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank is an alternative to the World Bank. And if you're not worried as much about governance and rules-based practices in the countries that you're lending money to, the possibility is, over time, uh, the, international, the liberal international economic order gets eroded. So that's the second argument. Third argument, the strategic, there's a direct military and strategic implication uh, of this uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so large Chinese investments in, uh, in underdeveloped and some pretty rough neighborhoods in Central Asia, some in the Middle East, um, this will create political pressures to provide security for infrastructure projects, people, and host nation governments. And the problem with that, on, on its face, that seems logical. That is, you invest a lot of money in certain parts of the world, you've got, you've got a lot of money at stake, you've got a lot of interest at stake, therefore there's going to be pressure both within China and within some of these host nation countries to provide security for those investments. Now, the pessimists then point out a couple of things. What does that lead to? It leads to one, step one, hire private security contractors to come in and help protect uh, investment and property. So Eric Prince in Beijing, training Chinese private security, at least that's what I read in the open press. Uh, as security problems start to expand, uh, pressure for small military presence, Chinese military presence, perhaps leading to a larger military presence in some of these areas. Um, Dual-use facilities used to help China extend its reach into some of these areas. You've got commercial investments in the port of Badar uh, and other parts of the Indian Ocean. These then could evolve into um, uh, these could involve into much more militarily oriented facilities. Um, and as military footprint starts to uh, grow, uh, the support functions, security functions go with it. Now, um, I'm going to talk at length about that, and I've written extensively on what, um, to what extent we need to worry about that, and I will address that. But, but the, the pessimists truly are worried about that, and then finally, uh, they argue that, that when you have a military presence in dangerous parts of the world, forward, away from China, uh, the, the temptation to, to provide very extensive um, defenses, missile defenses, air defenses for that equipment, uh, can't, it has to be tempting for the Chinese, has to be tempting for host nation countries. And so mm -hmm. some of the pessimists would argue that this could mean anti-axis area denial capabilities in parts of the Indian Ocean. So right now, we see A2AD capabilities close to China, and that's the thing we need to worry about. So the pessimists argue that the, the, the creeping expansion of Chinese presence abroad could lead to that level of militarization of facilities out of China, in the Indian Ocean, possibly parts of Africa, parts of, possibly parts of the Middle East. And so the growing expansion of Chinese military capabilities. Um, Another concern that the pessimists point out is that the, brick and, the Belt and Road Initiative also, um, its large geostrategic 
and geopolitical footprint will exacerbate regional tensions. So they already they point out, for example, that that China's agreement with Pakistan, for example, uh, in their the CPEC or China-Pakistan economic border, required that China accept Pakistan's <coughs> definition of the border, uh, which they have a border dispute between China and Pakistan with regard to, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, India and Pakistan and Kashmir. The fact that the Chinese have to accept that exacerbates the tension between India and Pakistan. So some of the arguments are that Belt and Road Initiative, as it expands out and has as different countries taking sides and forcing China to take sides, it's going to exacerbate regional tensions. Um, another worry, Belt and Road Initiative sows discord uh, in multilateral organizations friendly to the U.S. Um, it's well-known China's divide-and-conquer behavior between, uh, with the ASEAN states. China, China going to Cambodia and saying, we'll give you this much in, uh, in infrastructure aid if you do not um, issue a joint communique talking about South China Sea as a, as a problem. Well, this problem extends all the way in, into an area that I never thought would be a problem, the European Union. The fact that there are Chinese investments through the Belt and Road Initiative into the European Union has sowed some discord between Western Europe and Eastern Europe. The Western Europeans, centered in Brussels, very suspicious of Chinese investment and encroachment uh, in, the, um, in Europe. The Eastern Europeans, however, are much more welcoming of Chinese investments. And so therefore, what you have is a, a disunified European Union um, with diverging interests with, with, uh, with regard to certain international security issues. And so I can certainly see that. You know, um, and then finally, um, the argument that the Belt and Road Initiative erodes allied or partner willingness to side with the U.S. over a host of security and, and, and political issues. Um, China setting up political, economic, and military presence in defiance of U.S. So just imagine China forming military bases or presence in Sri Lanka, in Pakistan, in Djibouti, in Africa. And with the U.S. not either, either this is a casus belli, which is not. I mean, simply forming a military presence in another region is not a reason for the United States to attack another country. But the fact is, you have a military presence being formed in these different countries. The, the pessimists would argue that what this does is it erodes allied confidence in the United States and uh, in the security architecture of the U.S. Um, the allies are convinced that China, acting with impunity, um, is going to be feared more than the U.S., and therefore the, these countries, our allies and partners, won't be as supportive of U.S. in security for security policies. All right, Those, here are our two bookends, the, the, the optimist, the pessimist. Obviously, my career has been based on sort of cutting between these large arguments to try to come up with a middle position, because I, to me, it's never one or the other. It's never the end of the world, and yet it's never, also, we don't need anything to worry about. It's never, eh, this is fine, let's just relax, it'll be easy, because the Chinese are constantly competing with us, and yet it is also never as bad as we fear. Um, so the optimists are correct in a couple of things. Geo-strategy is overemphasized when we look at it. We do worry too much to some degree, and we do, um, we do ignore some of the origins of some of these plans. Belt and Road Initiative is an economics-oriented plan. Uh, um, domestic factors do largely guide the planning and execution of it. However, there's definitely a geostrategic element to the plan. Um, some of the evidence of that. Uh, evidence of investment 
uh, involving no or little return on investment. Um, a recent analysis by C4ADS, which I was, a, uh, I was one of the reviewers, point that out. They went around and they, they specifically looked at some of the Chinese investments and found that a lot, in a lot of cases China's losing huge amounts of funding. Uh, debt traps of host nations, countries, leaving China largely with strategic assets um, looks highly suspicious. For example, Sri Lanka. Right? The, the Sri Lankans agreed to invest in uh, uh, one, of the, one of the ports. They, they said, well, we're not sure if there's going to be a lot of sea traffic coming through this, but China is giving us very generous, they're generously loaning us this amount of money. When no shipping came through, the, the Sri Lankans couldn't pay the Chinese back. Guess what? The Chinese said, ah, no problem. We'll, we'll essentially, um, we'll essentially uh, have a lease, long-term lease for 99 years. Now they have essentially control over strategic assets in Sri Lanka. Um, Chinese writers and Chinese writings themselves acknowledge that there's a national security component uh, to the Belt and Road Initiative. Those were related to access, continued access to energy. It's related to the fact that a developed uh, inner province will deal, help deal with uh, their terrorist problem in Xinjiang province. Uh, uh, a developed uh, periphery creates a stable security environment for China. Um, and so the, 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 the Chinese analysts themselves acknowledge that it's not just, it's just, it's not just economics. There is a strategic component to it. Um, um, and there is evidence of, of growing overseas Chinese military dual-use presence. The Chinese facility in Djibouti, in, in, in Africa. Gwadar, the Gwadar uh, port. Hamantota, uh, which I just, uh, the port in Sri Lanka. So there is a growing, creeping Chinese investment in some of these areas which do have a military component. Um, you marry that with a number of other actions or activities that's going on. Chinese, um, the PLA, PLA Navy doing counter-piracy operations. UN peacekeepers getting permission to leave their UN peacekeeping operations to work with problems in Africa, right? They, they've gotten UN permission and host nation permission to possibly use UN peacekeepers in that function. Um, laws in China which allow for uh, PLA Navy, PLA Army or Navy forces to operate in the country, other countries out of area if the host nation approves and if the United Nations approves. So the Chinese are legally um, setting up the um, administrative requirements for them to operate overseas. Um, and then, of course, there's the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which, which is China's multilateral, out of area, out of China, uh, exercises with Russia, with the Central Asian countries. Now, Iran is involved in it. India is just joined as well. And so this serves as a model for China acting uh, operationally outside of China. Um, so there is something to the argument that there's a strategic element to the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, uh, now, at the same time, again, at the same time, the pessimists exaggerate as well. Um, yeah, American businesses are disadvantaged in some of the uh, bidding for peer, uh, Belt and Road Initiative projects uh, in Eurasia, but American businesses, in a lot of cases, um, never were competitive in some of these parts. In Central Asia, Eurasia, it's not as if the United States had a competitive edge over, over some, of these, um, some of these other companies. India and Japan are quite competitive in these areas. So, so when the pessimists talk about how Belt and Road Initiative is cutting us out, uh, 
they, they tend to exaggerate um, in, in, uh, in some of those. Um, and here's an important point. The biggest fear is that the intent of the Chinese is to completely overturn the international order. That is, the idea that Belt and Road Initiative is essentially designed to completely eradicate, destroy, and break up the international order that was created by the United States post-World War II. Um, so lots of debate amongst China analysts over this. The best argument or an analysis um, I've seen on this is uh, by Evan Feigenbaum, um, now of, uh, he's the vice chair at, at the Paulson Group, former deputy assistant secretary of state. Very great, good analysis on this subject. On well, one other personal note, uh, Evan and I were both in China as a, he has a teenager, 16 years old, and me as a 21 year old at the same Chinese language program. So I've known Evan 30 something years, which is, which is, which is odd. But um, um, his point, China is not trying to overturn the international, econo international economic order. He points out that, listen, we know what China looks like when it does try and overturn an international order, the Maoist years, et cetera. This is not what we're seeing. Um, he points out a couple of interesting facts. Yes, China creates the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank as an alternative to the World Bank. But guess what it's also doing? It's also heavily investing in current international financial institutions. Number three shareholder in the Asian Development Bank. Sizable contributions to the International Monetary Fund where its voting rights are just shy of Japan's. And Japan is no uh, revisionist state. Um, China has joined all of the regional development banks in Europe, Latin America, and Africa. This does not sound like a country that's trying to overturn everything, but actually what Evan does point out um, is that this is actually a much more complex issue. If China were actually trying to attack international economic institutions directly, the foreign policy of the United States would be easy. Just, just oppose it. Just simply try and deny China to do that. But that's not what China's doing, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, it's not trying to overturn the international economic order, but it is trying to, to use its negotiating muscle, its diplomatic, its economic weight to change the international order from within to suit China's military, economic, and political interests. And that is a much more challenging thing to deal with, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, the, the point that pessimists talk about, which is uh, the Belt and Road Initiative will exacerbate tensions among uh, regional powers. True but not in ways that, are, that the United States necessarily needs to worry about. So the example of India and Pakistan tensions rising because China had to, um, because China accepted uh, Pakistan's uh, border claim, who do you think the Indians are upset with? China. The in, so the Indians have then said, all right, when China came around saying, does everybody accept the Belt and Road Initiative, do we all have a go-ahead? The Indians refused to accept it. They said, no, we diplomatically do not accept the Belt and Road Initiative because, one, you're, you're violating our core interest, which is national, national, territory, national territoriality. So the border problems that some of the pessimists indicate uh, are there, but they're not necessarily going to be benefiting China. Second example, China making inroads in Central Asia. The one country that's probably going to get upset about it and won't take this lying down will be Russia. Russia will not necessarily be happy that China is making great inroads in Central Asia. And so a lot of the arguments about how regional tensions will increase, uh, I, think are, I think are slightly overblown. Um, finally, um, with, uh, the argument that the Belt and Road Initiative erodes allied cooperation, I really do think is overblown. 
Um, if you simply look at the behavior of our allies over the last year or so, last two years, um, and not even just allies, but friends and partners, India and Indonesia forming a strategic partnership together. The quadrilateral powers concept, Australia, India, Japan, and the United States getting together and forming closer ties, that's there. Japan forming security cooperation relationships in Southeast Asia as part of a free and open Indo-Asia Pacific. Um, and then India and Japan getting together and formulating investment strategies as competition for China in Africa and other areas, to me, does not smack of allies and partners running for the hills. But in fact, I would say that the, our allies and partners are taking the lead in countering some of China's actions. So I do think that the idea that the China's actions are going to erode our allies and partners' willingness to help uh, the United States, to me, is completely overblown. So, all right, so I've given you sort of the optimist, pessimist, there's something in the middle. What, am I, what do I think we really need to be concerned about as I look at Belt and Road Initiative? Um, so first, Belt and Road's vast scale and scope does suggest a significant impact on U.S. commercial and economic interests. Um, at present, Belt and Road Initiative bidding process does remain opaque. And non-transparent, and its non-transparent nature um, uh, at the beginning of the process does leave American companies at a disadvantage. So when Americans are trying, saying, "Hey, I'm a, I, I want to get in on this this very extensive, very significant economic program," and they don't have information as to when the bidding process begins, how to get access to it, that's a problem, right? Um, secondly, U.S. companies are um, clearly confront an uneven playing field. Uh, a Chinese-led program is clearly going to, is going to uh, benefit Chinese companies. Um, State-owned enterprises with subsidized funding are going to have uh, a financial leg up on American companies. Financing from Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank and the Silk Fund um, when, uh, are sometimes tied to, to the, the uh, project picking a Chinese company. So they're clearly right now, as it is, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is designed right now, and I'm not necessarily saying that this can't change, but with countries complaining and China saying we want everybody in on it, that could change. But right now, it's an uneven playing field, and, uh, and there's not enough transparency to help our companies actually play. Uh, play. Um, but to me, there's a larger um, economic issue that we've got to contend with. Even more importantly than Belt and Road's initiative's impact on um, uh, on American economic competitiveness. Um, earlier, I dismissed the argument that China is attempting to overturn the system, right? Um, I didn't dismiss the idea that China is attempting to significantly reform, alter, and transform the economic system from within. That, to me, is the real, that's the real challenge that the United States has. Um, so, uh, from the economic systems management point of view, what does this mean? A Belt and Road Initiative that succeeds on Chinese terms could have a large impact on regulations and rules um, governing supply chains, technical standards for such products as their high-speed railways and wireless uh, networks, environmental standards. I mean, it's, it's clear that if China um, is successful in this matter and they don't have as high environmental standards, we're going to be in a race to the bottom. And of course, labor, uh, labor and other standards are also at risk. Um, Geopolitically, from a geopolitical point of view, what do we need to worry about? Um, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is part of a larger Chinese strategy um, to, again, referring to Evan's fine analysis, um, uh, uh, it's, a, it's an effort to diversify its strategic portfolio. 
And by that, he means uh, China not only creates the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank as an alternative, uh, uh, China not only invests heavily in our current international uh, environment, but they also create alternatives. Uh, they also uh, utilize um, they also utilize governing bodies like the G20 to assert their political interests. Um, and they've also been very effective at uh, advocating for changing the international power structure, right? The United Nations, other areas. They've been very effective in lobbying the global south, <coughs> the Indias, the Brazils of the world, um, against our Western allies, in particular those countries that have not necessarily been as robust, Netherlands, Belgium, I mean, you name some of the EU countries that are, uh, Italy, Spain, right? The Chinese effectively make the argument that, hey, the, the international power structure is changing. Therefore, our international institutions have to change. Therefore, G20 needs to be given more power, the UN needs to be given more power. And what this does is it effectively starts to neutralize, reduce, erode the, the voting weight, the voting power of countries that have liberal economic political values similar to the United States. We are in a dilemma because to argue otherwise, right, let's, let's side with an Italy or Spain against a, a, an India or a Brazil. And the Chinese have a very effective argument in saying, does this make sense to you? We're in an emerging world. And yet, if we do that, we're, we're buying into an argument that some of these countries don't necessarily accept or ascribe to some of our liberal, Western liberal values. So the Chinese are very effectively making the argument that we should be more functional. This functionality should represent the changing power structure. And you should stop holding on to uh, the Western liberal values and your allies in this area. And the United States is caught in this conundrum because to then say, nope, we think that we're holding on, become, we start losing the audience internationally. All right. Um, bottom line is the, the Belt and Road Initiative is part of a larger political strategy to utilize China's growing economic and political power to create an international environment more suitable to Beijing's interests. Uh, Belt Road Initiative is part of a larger, more activist foreign policy which enhances China's negotiating power vis-a-vis -vis the United States. This, to me, is the key question. This is a negotiating strategy, economically, politically, and then militarily. Now, the military component of this uh, is interesting. Um, um, I agree with the pessimists when they say, yeah, there's a, there's a creeping militarization or creeping uh, military presence in some of these countries. However, I don't go so far as to say this is the intent of this is for these countries to then take on the United States or some of the regional powers like India in, in this, in this uh, systemic conflict. It's not a repeat of the Second World War. To me, it's something much more challenging for the United States. That is, if you, if you have a military presence in some of these areas, uh, that are clearly going to be vulnerable to attack in a large-scale conflict between India. Let's say India and Pakistan have a large, and China is involved in this large-scale conflict. China putting lots of military assets in Sri Lanka or Pakistan would leave them completely vulnerable. So, so initially, my analysis said, no, China is not likely to is not likely to do that. Well, what China, when I talk to the Indians about this, they will say, you need to think about this in a very different way. You're thinking about this in terms of military analysis. You need to think of this in a, from a point of view of a political military analysis. Small presence in some of these areas gives China the ability to operate further from China 
and to, in conjunction with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, in conjunction with counter-piracy operations, in conjunction with a more expeditionary capability, short of an overt military conflict with the United States, gives China greater negotiating space to deal with the U.S. on security issues. So just imagine, and just to visualize this, if Russia had not intervened in Syria, U.S. interests, U.S. calculations would be quite different. But the fact that you have the Russians involved right smack into an area that we have a great deal of interest completely changed the calculus. So China, by having a forward presence, being able to line up with uh, countries in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, having a forward presence in some of these areas, is better able to negotiate with the United States uh, with regard to security issues. That's what, I, that's what I would be concerned about. And so, therefore, those are the things we need to worry about. I, I was going to talk some more about it, but I think you, you have the general gist of, of where I'm going at. Um, with regard to some of the things we might be able to do, um, the economic responses, um, I've often heard things like we need to look at, re-look at how USAID does its development practices, it strategizes overseas private investment corporation, Exxon Bank. We need to rethink that. We also might need to rethink how the United States government is structured to strategize across, uh, across security, political, and economic issues. Because clearly, I've just synthesized three different uh, issue areas, and it's a challenge that goes across the range of issue areas. The United States is not equipped right now to, to fuse and strategize along uh, uh, outside of those lanes. We've got our own lanes and we stick to them. So that's the first problem. Second possible response, um, just in Vietnam uh, this last week, and the Vietnamese said, hey, if TPP still was here, this would have been a great alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative. We don't mind, you know, we're not unalterably opposed to trans. Uh, to the Belt and Road Initiative, we just want to decide which belt and which road. And therefore, when we yank TPP out from underneath that region and the Vietnamese, we, we lost a great tool as an alternative uh, to deal with uh, that issue. Uh, third potential um, response. Uh, there are countries that are on the front lines in competition with China. We need to do everything we can to help those countries. India, right there in the front line. Indonesia, some of the countries in Southeast Asia, we need to do everything we can uh, to help. Um, third, there's a military response that we, we could uh, undertake, and the military um, individuals in the audience will say this sounds familiar, but I think they're tried and true. More places, if not bases, more places. Right? Uh, if we can have a greater presence in the Indian Ocean, that would be terrific. I, I have, I've seen arguments about perhaps creating another naval command, a ninth fleet. Uh, I've seen military folks argue vehemently saying, no, no, right now, we already stretched too thin with regard to command staffs in the Asia Pacific. So maybe that's not such a great idea. Um, but a whole host of ideas with regard to being innovative and being able to operate in the Asia Pacific and the Indian Ocean is necessary. The, the change of command's name Indo, from Pacific Command to Indo-Pacific Command is a good start because conceptually that means the United States government Pacific Command and the Department of Defense get the fact that it's conceptually we need to think of this as one theater with India on one side and Japan on the other and Australia in the middle with the United States working with these countries to help uh, to help manage the security issues there. That's a good start, but we got to back it up with investments, with rethinking on how we do exercises, um, rethinking how we interact with the countries of the region. So with that, let me stop and I'm happy to take questions and thank you for your attention.